This morning, I want to talk on a subject that probably might surprise you a little bit, but one that's very, very close to my heart because it's so critical in the Scripture. And I think it's one that relates to your spiritual life in a very, very significant way. Let me be as frank as I can be. I believe there are many Christians, and some of them are right here in this place this morning, who struggle with sin, who struggle with doubt, who struggle with fears, who struggle with obedience, who struggle with their prayer life, struggle with their time in the Word. And those struggles may be related to a very simple reality, and it is this. They have never been baptized. Does that surprise you? I don't think I've ever heard anybody on Christian radio or Christian television ever preach a sermon on baptism. I don't think that I've ever seen a book that has been written. None has passed my view in the last 20 years on the subject of baptism. When I wanted to study baptism, I had to go back into the archives to find some ancient tome to give me any information about baptism. I have been preaching for years and years, and I cannot remember in all the conference ministries that I've preached in ever hearing anybody ever preach a sermon on baptism. And I would like to take it a step further. In spite of the fact that baptism is commanded in the Scripture, probably the majority of people who call themselves Christians have never been baptized. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know whether you want to put your hand up or not, but how many of you have not been baptized? I think that is so basic and so important to our Christian life because that is the first command that the Lord ever gave to one who believed. Repent and what? Be baptized. The Great Commission says that we're to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. And I am convinced that an unbaptized church which includes some of you, unbaptized believers are in a condition of disobedience. And that condition of disobedience precludes the full blessing of God. We have people supposedly affirming Christ all over the globe and certainly all over this country who never hear anything about baptism and who therefore do not take the first and primary basic step of Christian obedience. I guess I could be bold enough to say that this failure to take baptism seriously is very likely at the root of some problems in the lives of people and immense problems in the church. Because it basically betrays people's unfaithfulness to the simple, straightforward commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can't obey the command to be baptized, why should there be any confidence that I'm going to obey the ones that nobody can know whether I'm obeying or not? When Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, he gave a command to the church to baptize. 
When the Holy Spirit said, repent and be baptized, he gave a command to the believer to be baptized. You remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and were baptized the same day. And they really set the pattern for everyone. But there is, frankly, in the Christian world today, a widespread non-compliance with the matter of baptism. And I want to see if I can't share with you this principle because I want you to know the path of blessing and obedience. A person who claims to be a Christian and has not been baptized must fit into one or more of the following categories. All right? If you claim to be a Christian but you've not been baptized, one, you may be ignorant. That's true. It may be that nobody taught you about baptism. That's very possible. Or it may be that somebody taught you wrongly about baptism. And there has been much teaching about baptism that is wrong. Secondly, it may not be that you're, you're ignorant. It may be that some of you haven't been baptized because you're, you're proud. Or to flip the thing over a little bit, you're a bit embarrassed. You're not willing to humble yourself and admit that you've been disobedient. You're kind of embarrassed to acknowledge your failure to do what's directly indicated in Scripture. There's a third label that some might have, and that is that they're not baptized because they're indifferent. Some people would just say, well, I can't be bothered. I just can't get around to it. I don't go to church that often. It's not a priority for me. I know it's commanded. I know I'm supposed to be obedient, but that doesn't seem like a very important issue. And they decide that even though God says it's important, they think it isn't. It may be also there's another category we could call defiant. There are some who would say, I don't really care whether the Lord commands it or not. I refuse to obey. I have my reasons. I'm not willing to do that. Usually these kinds of people are sinning and they would feel hypocritical. And then there's another category. And that would be the unregenerate, people who aren't saved. Not true Christians. They have no desire to be baptized because they're not truly saved. They have no desire to make a public confession of faith in Christ because they don't hold that faith in their heart. They just want to be around Christians so people will think they're Christians, but they really don't ever want to be identified publicly as having taken that stand. Now that puts the issue squarely where it belongs. If you haven't been baptized, you might be ignorant, and we'll dispel that this morning. If you haven't been taught properly, you might be proud. In other words, you're too ashamed to admit that you have been disobedient for a long time. You might be indifferent and say, I really don't care. It's not that important to me. You might be defiant and flatly say, I'm not about to do that because you're in a sinful situation and you don't want to add a, a sort of a public hypocrisy to your already troubled life. Or it might be that you're not a Christian and that you have no desire for this. But if you have not been baptized, you fall into one of those categories. Now, in order to help you to climb out of those categories and get into the obedient category, I want to teach you some of the things that the Bible says about baptism. And I think you're going to find this fascinating. First question, and we'll ask a series of questions to try to answer them briefly. What is baptism? What is it? When we talk about baptism, what are we talking about? Simply said, it is a ceremony by which a person is immersed, submerged, or dunked in water. That's baptism. Two key verses in the New Testament express this basic idea. The two key words, rather, terms. One is bapto, and the other is baptizo, which is a form, an intensive form of the Greek verb bapto. 
Now, let me tell you what bapto means. It's used four times. Baptizo is used many, many, many times. But bapto means to immerse, to dip, to dip into. It's even used to dye something where you submerge it in a colored dye so that the thing is completely covered. Baptizo means to dip completely or to drown. We try to avoid that, however, in our baptismal services. So these terms mean to dip into water. The best term would be immerse or submerge. The noun form of this verb, baptismas, is used always in Acts, in the book of Acts, to refer to a Christian immersion into water. So the terms bapto, baptizo, baptismas all refer to immersing into water. And they become in the New Testament technical terms for such immersion that we know as Christian baptism. Because of that, the terms are not even translated. In other words, wherever the Greek word bapto, baptizo appeared, it should say immersed, dipped into, submerged. But it doesn't. It says baptized. And that is a transliteration rather than a translation. And the reason for that is because it became such a technical word for Christian baptism that rather than translate it, they transliterated it. But it would really be better for all of us if they had translated it. If the, the translators of the King James had just translated baptizo into immersed, we wouldn't be having all this problem trying to debate about sprinkling and pouring and, and dipping and dropping and all the other things that are done. It means to immerse or even submerge. Every New Testament use of these words either requires the concept of immersion or permits the concept of immersion. Notably, if you're thinking about Reformed theology, which wants to sprinkle instead of uh, immerse people, you might want to be reminded that John Calvin, no less than John Calvin, wrote, and I quote him, The word baptize means to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church, end quote, John Calvin. Now, the world is full of Calvinists who somehow don't buy into that little piece of John Calvin's theology. But it is without equivocation that these terms in the New Testament mean to immerse into water. It is interesting to note that the verbs are never used in the passive. Those verbs are never used in the passive. That is, water is never said to be baptized on someone. It is never water baptized on someone. It is always someone baptized in water. So that it never refers to dumping water on someone, sprinkling water on them, pouring water on them, or touching a little drop of water to their head. The New Testament occasions of baptism, wherever you see an actual event of baptism, make immersion the obvious meaning. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, very interesting, verse 6, And they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River, in the Jordan River. Not with the Jordan River, but in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. Verse 16, And after being baptized by John in the Jordan River, of course, Jesus went up immediately from the water. It wasn't the water on Jesus, it was Jesus in the water. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, just emphasizing this further, 
John 3.23, and John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem. Why? Because there was much water there. Now, if you're going to sprinkle people, you don't need a lot of water. But there was enough water there to put people completely under, to submerge them, which is what baptism refers to. Mark 1.5, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, the same concept. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36, Philip and the eunuch, the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, and Philip submerged him. Now, it's obvious then from the New Testament terminology and the New Testament record that immersion is the only thing that fits Christian baptism. Now, there are some other baptisms in the New Testament. There is the baptism with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. There is the baptism of fire and the great and final judgment. Now, we're not going to talk about those. John the Baptist talked about those and there are spoken of other places. But we're talking about baptism into water. This water baptism, then, which is defined as submerging someone under the water and bringing them back out, is commanded of every believer. It is a picture, an object lesson, a symbol, a physical analogy of a very profound spiritual reality. It is the way God wants to teach the most wonderful truth of all, and that is the truth of salvation. You understand that? Baptism is crucial because it is an object lesson about the reality of salvation. You say, who is it intended for? I think in a family setting, in a local church setting, it is intended for the people that are there, but particularly for the children and the young people, so that they can have a graphic external object lesson about the spiritual internal reality of salvation. I think for the greater watching world, the unbelieving community, it is to be to them an object lesson of what God does on the inside, demonstrated on the outside. It is God's way of demonstrating visibly to those who need to learn the lesson from an external analogy, the reality of internal salvation. Any student who studies the scripture knows that God has always taught spiritual truth using symbols and pictures and illustrations and parables and analogies. Throughout the Old Testament, God had all kinds of those things. Symbols, ceremonies to commemorate events that told the story of spiritual truth. Symbols and ceremonies that were carried out regularly. And when they were carried out in Israel, the little children would say, what does this mean? And their parents, off of that analogy or that illustration or that ceremony, would say, well, let me explain what it means. And they would move from the object lesson to the spiritual reality. And the same would be true for a watching, unconverted individual who would say, what is the intent of this? Some Gentile, why do you do this? And they would then, off of the illustration, be able to explain the spiritual reality that it illustrated. This is how spiritual truth was passed from one generation to the next. They couldn't forget the spiritual truth because they had the memory of the vividness of the analogy or the parable or the ceremony or the symbol. Baptism was one of God's favorite symbols. It is an object lesson, a visual representation of a spiritual reality. 
Now, let me ask a second question, and we'll try to answer this in a very clear way, I hope. What has been the history of baptism? Where does it come from? How are we to understand it? Well, going back before the New Testament, baptism did exist, immersing people in water. It was called proselyte baptism. You know what a proselyte is? Proselyte was a Gentile who wanted to identify with Israel. He heard about the true God. He wanted to believe in the true God. He began to fear the true God. And so he was ushered, as it were, as an outsider into the covenant that God had made with Israel. He wanted to identify with the Jews because he wanted to worship the true God. And for this Gentile, they had a special baptism. Now, in fact, there was a three-stage ceremony. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to identify with the Jews and worship the true God and worship Him in the way that He had designed through the Jewish ceremonies and all of that, you would go through three things. Number one, you would have what was called milah. That's circumcision. Circumcision. The unique sign of the people of God to demonstrate in symbol that they needed cleansing from sin in their very nature. And so a Gentile, no matter how old he was, who wanted to become identified with Jewish customs, tradition, and true worship of the true God, would be circumcised. Now this is a fascinating thing, circumcision. And uh, just to give you a simple understanding of what it means, it is a symbol of cleansing. If you study any kind of medical material on circumcision, you will know that there is a potential for an uncircumcised person to become infected. I was just reading about this just about a, a two weeks ago in a very interesting article, journal article that came out. And there is still medical reason to do that, particularly in more primitive countries than ours, which would be much like Old Testament times. Countries where those matters of cleanliness and sanitation and health and that kind of thing were not as, as good as we have it now and where water was not as plentiful and people didn't bathe as frequently. There was the potential for infection. It is still there in uncircumcised people to a greater de degree than circumcised people. But that wasn't really the, the whole point. There was that sort of physical health issue. The real issue was this, this operation which brought about a removal of a potential physical infection was designed by God to illustrate the need that they had for the removal of a deep spiritual infection. Understand that? That was the symbol. The symbol was that uh, I'm showing you outwardly and physically that you need something taken away from you to make you clean spiritually. You say, but why did God choose that kind of surgery? I'll tell you why. Because the reproductive organ of the human being is the point at which you are most, most clearly revealed to be a sinner. You say, what do you mean by that? I can sin with my mouth, I can, I can sin with my eyes, I can sin with all the parts of my body. But the point is this, if you want to know the true depth of human sin, you will find out this way. Here it comes. Because sinners will always reproduce what? Sinners. And when you touch the reproductive part of human life, you are touching the depth of human sinfulness. Because if you want to know whether we're sinners or not, just check into what we produce. And all we ever produce is more and more and more and more and more sinners. We pass on, don't we, our fallenness. 
God was saying by circumcision, you need a cleansing, and you need cleansing at the deepest level of your existence. It is obvious your sin is deep because you produce people who have no ability to avoid sinning. They are in nature and essence sinful. So circumcision was the first part of Gentile proselyting. They went through that to demonstrate the depth of their sinfulness. The second thing added to Milah was Tebilah. That's a Jewish ceremony of immersion. A Gentile proselyte was then taken, and uh, he was put into the water, dunked under, and brought out. You say, why did they do that? They were demonstrating that he was dying, that he was dead to his old life. They buried him, as it were. It's like he died and was buried. And he came up to live a new life in the family of God by the covenant of God. And then there was Corban, the third part of the ceremony, and that was an animal sacrifice. The animal was sacrificed, the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the person, symbolizing that person's need for forgiveness of sins, and symbolizing that person's commitment to obey God. Remember in Exodus 24, Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar, which represented God, then he sprinkled the blood on the people, and they were saying, we will do all that God has said. And so the covenant made there was, God said, I'll bless you, the people said, we'll obey you. So with the Gentile, the same kind of sacrifice was made. And so immersion was a part of the Gentile proselytization of the Old Testament. By the time you come to the New Testament, the Jews then are very familiar with immersion. Now follow this thought. The Jews were very, very familiar with immersion. Now here comes John the Baptist. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's announcing the coming of Messiah. And he begins his ministry by doing what? What is John the Baptist famous for? Baptism. So he's down at the Jordan River, and he's baptizing whole cities of people. They're just coming down there in great waves. So many people are coming that the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests and the rulers, all come down there to find out what in the world is going on. It is an amazing thing. Here come all these Jews, more Jews and more Jews. And you know what they want? They want to be baptized. Do you know what that says? Do you know what they're saying? In effect, they're saying, we are like Gentiles. We are estranged from God. It was an acknowledgement on the part of those Jews that though they were genetically the children of Abraham, spiritually they were Gentiles. Spiritually they were strangers. Spiritually they were outside the covenant, which is no small admission for Jews to make, particularly in that day. And they were coming down and they were saying, we want to turn from our sin and we want to come into a true relationship with the true God. You say, well, why would they do that? Because John the Baptist was announcing that the Messiah was coming. And they wanted to be ready when the Messiah was there. And they were acknowledging that though they were Jews racially, they were outside the spiritual covenant. They were not saved. They were not redeemed. They were sinful. And they were like Gentiles who needed to be converted. This is an amazing thing. The ministry of John the Baptist is astounding because God so moved on the hearts of people and so powerfully worked through his preaching as to make Jews admit that from a covenant standpoint, they were Gentiles. That is quite an admission. And they wanted to be cleansed. And they were repenting. That's why John the Baptist said to the rulers who came down there, bring forth fruits fit for repentance. This is a baptism of repentance from people who were Jewish by race, but who were not true Jews in the spiritual end of it, and they wanted to make things right. 
And he called then for a baptism of repentance unto holiness. And he put them under the water and they were saying, I'm going to die to my old sin and I want to live to God. I want to be a true covenant Jew. And there was no better outward symbol to show that than that kind of baptism. And that is precisely what John did. All who submitted to that baptism in the Jordan were confessing their sins and that they were worthy of death and they were worthy of burial. And so they went through a symbolic death and a symbolic burial and they came out with a desire and by the grace of God, the ability to live obediently. So the baptism of John then marks the turning of a sinful Jew who wanted to be ready to face the Messiah and it associates him with the others who also were turning to the Messiah and God is, is gathering a repentant people to get ready for the Messiah's arrival. On one special day, you remember, Jesus came to where John was? And Jesus came and said, I want to be baptized. And John said, whoa, I can't deal with that. You can understand his problem, right? You read about it in Matthew chapter 3. Why would he want to baptize Jesus? Jesus, he knew, was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He said that. Why would he want to baptize Jesus? Jesus didn't have any sin. He was absolutely sinless. He certainly didn't need to die to an old life and rise to walk in a new life. He didn't need to get ready for the Messiah. He was the Messiah. And how in the world could John baptize Jesus? That would put John in a position of being superior to Jesus. And so John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. He resisted baptizing Jesus for exactly the opposite reason that he resisted baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were in need of repentance and wouldn't admit it. And Jesus needed no repentance. John attempted to prevent Jesus from being baptized. That very act by John is a testimony to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus wanted to be baptized, and so he was, in spite of John's protest. Why? What does Jesus' baptism mean? Well, maybe he wanted to identify with the people who were getting ready for him. Maybe he wanted to set an example for believers in the future. That's possible, but let me tell you the best, the best understanding. I believe his baptism was prophetic. I believe it was a prophecy, a visual prophecy of his death, resurrection, as a prefigurement of Christian baptism. We are baptized. We go into the water, symbolizes our union with the death of Christ. We come out of the water, symbolizes our union in the resurrection of Christ. We look back. I believe Jesus here, being baptized, was looking forward. And this was prophetic of his death, burial, and resurrection. Not long before his final trip to Jerusalem, he told his disciples, quote, Luke 12:50, I have a baptism to undergo. I have a baptism to undergo. In John 10:38, he said, Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I will experience? So he did look at his death, burial, and resurrection as a baptism. And I think he was simply symbolizing that here. In submitting, then he prefigured or prophesied the purpose for which he came to die, to be buried under the waves of divine judgment, and then to rise in newness of life. It was prophetic. It was a shadow of the great solemn death, burial, and resurrection which he must undergo. 
So Christ's baptism then gives us the first picture of Christian baptism. A marvelous picture. Now, Christian baptism then became the norm. Jesus said, go into all the world and baptize people. Now, whatever baptism we're supposed to do has to fit the picture. And so immersion is the only legitimate means by which you can picture death, burial, and resurrection. You can't picture it by dumping water on someone. You can't picture it by pouring them, sprinkling, dotting their head with water. That does not picture death, burial, resurrection. Go all the way into the Old Testament. Proselyte baptism was an immersion. John's baptism was an immersion. Jesus prophesying his own death, burial, and resurrection was immersed. And afterwards, he says, immerse people. That's the only means by which you can demonstrate that kind of spiritual reality. That leads us then to the next question. What is the meaning of Christian baptism? What is its meaning? This is a wonderful concept. You need to grasp it. I want to say it as simply as I can. The meaning is this. It is an identification outwardly of something that has happened inwardly. If you go through the New Testament, you find some graphic illustrations of this. But I want to show you one. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is coming at it from a bit of a different angle. And I think it will make the point. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the only time you have this kind of statement in the New Testament. And Paul here is writing about the wilderness and all the people who wandered in the wilderness. In verse 2 he says this. Remember the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness 40 years? It says, and all were baptized into Moses. What? What is that? What do you mean all were baptized into Moses? Some say, well, that was when they went through the Red Sea. No, when they went through the Red Sea, nobody got baptized. The thing was dry. That's not the answer. What do you mean they were all baptized into Moses? Don't use the transliterated word baptized. Use the translation. All were immersed into Moses. All were submerged into Moses. All were plunged into Moses. All were dipped into Moses. What does that mean? Very simply. In the wilderness, Moses was the God-appointed and God-ordained leader, and all of the people were joined to him. That's all it means. They were all united to Moses. He was the head. It was like that wonderful word that we got out of Eastern Europe a few years ago, solidarity. There was solidarity with everybody and Moses. Moses was the leader, and they were all merged into Moses. As Moses went, so they went. And Moses led, they followed. Moses said they did. That's the point. Solidarity with him as their leader. Now, when you were saved, what happened to you? Galatians 2.20. I am crucified, what? With Christ. So you died with Christ. Romans 6. I was buried with him in baptism. Not, not water baptism. You were immersed in his death. And then you rose with him to walk in newness of life. Listen, when you became a Christian, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, by some divine, mysterious power that God knows and we can't comprehend, you were joined with Jesus Christ. You died on the cross with him. You were buried with him. And you rose with him. His life is your life. And Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17 So when you became a Christian, you were joined to Christ. You died in His death. You were buried in His burial. You rose in His resurrection. And you now walk in His new life. You were placed into union with Christ. You are one with Christ. Now, that's not talking about water. That's the fact. That's the spiritual reality. But Christian water baptism depicts that outwardly. I was crucified with Christ. My old life died on that cross. I was buried with Him. And I rose and now I have new life in Christ. I was united in His death. And I was united in His resurrection spiritually. And water baptism demonstrates that. The water baptism doesn't save you. Peter says that in 1 Peter 3.21. He said it's not the washing away of dirt from your skin. That's not going to save you. Water, H2O. But water baptism symbolizes the faith that joined you to Christ in death, burial, and resurrection that did save you. It's impossible to depict that by sprinkling someone, is it not? Absolutely impossible. And the fourth question. What is the relation of immersion to salvation? How does this relate to salvation? I've said it. I'll just say it very simply. It symbolizes the spiritual reality. It symbolizes the spiritual reality. Now listen, it became, however, so synonymous with salvation that you could actually say to someone, when were you baptized? That's right. In fact, in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Baptism was so inseparably linked to repentance... That everybody was baptized. And so you didn't say, I was saved 42 years ago. I was saved three weeks ago. I got saved at the meeting of the night. You said, I was what? Baptized. I was baptized. That was the external visible symbol of the internal spiritual reality. And when Paul writes about our faith, he says in Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's simply talking about water baptism as the symbol of our salvation. Everybody was baptized. There was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian in the early church. Nobody was running around loose because people said, I was baptized, I was baptized then, I was baptized over here, I got baptized when Paul preached here. And if a convert was not willing to do that, there was little confidence in his repentance. If he was willing, he paid a high price. A high price because he publicly identified his faith in Jesus Christ and he publicly demonstrated true repentance. He publicly said, my old life is gone and I am walking newness of life in obedience to Jesus Christ. That kind of public statement was an external validation of an inward transformation. And when I say that someone not willing to do that yielded the fact that there was reason to suspect the genuineness of his faith now salvation is by grace through faith but if you're not willing to be baptized and you know you need to be and you understand it then there's reason to question your commitment and your faith salvation is not by baptism there are some who want to teach that and anybody who's got any sense in their mind knows you can't be you can't be saved by water Especially if you happen to be baptized in Los Angeles. Have you seen the water here? Possible. One who refused baptism would be one who refused Christ. One who accepted Christ would be one who was baptized. 
I believe, young people, when you become baptized, it produces blessing for you because it's obedience. And obedience always results in what? Blessing. It's not going to save you. It's not going to make you holy. But it will demonstrate that your testimony about your salvation is honest. Baptism, then, is in symbol form demonstrating what God has done in spiritual form in your life. One writer says this, Baptism is a proclamation on God's part, signifying by the outward sign to those who believe that their sins are washed away by the blood of Christ, that they have been united with Him by His Spirit in the newness of His resurrection life, and are partakers of all the benefits which He has secured for His people. On man's part, baptism is a public confession of his sin and a sign of his giving up of himself to Christ to walk in newness of life. Now, having said all of that, one more question. Why is there so much confusion about baptism? As I said, some people are just ignorant. Nobody emphasizes it today, and it's tragic. It should be the first step of obedience. But there are other reasons. Do you know some people deny baptism altogether? How they do this is beyond me. Groups like the Quakers, the Friends, the Salvation Army, hyper-dispensational groups deny baptism altogether. Usually they dispensationalize it away. Some others say it is necessary for salvation. You have the Church of Christ Christian Church movement, which says that you're not saved until you've gone through the water. And they make water an element of salvation. Some say you need to be baptized for dead people. The Mormons do that. Do you know every year 2.5 million living Mormons are baptized for who knows how many dead Mormons? It's a proxy baptism to try to extract some dead Mormons out of their suffering condition. Some advocate it for babies. The Roman Catholic Church really started this infant baptism. They believe that babies are regenerated when they're sprinkled. By the way, some priest somewhere, did you read it in the paper the other day? Some priest is now immersing babies because he's come to the reality that the New Testament obviously is talking about immersion. He's a Roman Catholic priest who's now immersing babies, and he's very controversial. But infant baptism, they believe, brings some saving grace. The water, they say, this is Catholic theology, the water cleanses the baby from original sin and results in regeneration. By the way, they still believe that, but until the Middle Ages, and this is the problem they're having, infant baptism in the Catholic Church was done by immersion, now it's done by sprinkling. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that, it is a, that if a baby dies without being baptized, it goes to the limbo of the innocents. You know where that is? I don't know where it is either. The limbo of the innocents. But they say it's a place where you get some natural bliss, but without the beatific vision of God. Martin Luther came along, brought the Protestant Reformation, but never got his baptism theology fixed. And so in Lutheran and other reform circles, the the infant baptism sprinkling still follows. Luther wrote a small book in 1526 called the Small Baptismal Book. And in it, this is what it says, just to show you where Lutheran and, and and, and most of the reform churches are who follow Luther and Calvin, the prayer in there, O Almighty, I invoke thee concerning this child, thy servant who asks for the gift of thy baptism and desires thy grace through the spiritual new birth. Receive him, O Lord, thus extend now the good to him who knocks, that he may obtain the eternal blessing of this heavenly bath and receive the promised kingdom of thy gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In other words, they're praying that the baby will get saved through this bath. 
And then the infant is asked, they ask the baby this, Dost thou renounce the devil and all his works? And the parents say, yes. The parents speak. Dost thou believe in God the Father, in Jesus Christ his Son, and in the Holy Spirit and the Christian church? When the parents say, yes, the child is baptized, then the prayer, the Almighty God hath begotten thee anew through water, and the Holy Spirit, and has forgiven thee all thy sins. Amen. You believe that? Of course not. It's a travesty on New Testament teaching. The Reformed view kind of follows out of that Lutheran view, and their view is that when adults turn to Christ, they are to be sprinkled. Now that they are in a covenant relationship to God, they are to be sprinkled. The problem with that is they say, well, why, why do you sprinkle? You know what they'll say? It is the new circumcision. It is the new circumcision. Listen, the symbolism of the new covenant is not a symbolism to match the circumcision of the old covenant. The symbolism of the new covenant is a symbolism to match the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Furthermore, sprinkling doesn't seem to be a, to be a symbol that matches circumcision in any way, shape, or form anyway. But it certainly should be made clear that the symbolism of the new covenant must match the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, because you have these various teachings floating around, people are confused about it. Another strange twist that has been advocated is that there is never to be a rebaptism. Do you know that the Anabaptists, you know what Anabaptism means? It means to be baptized again. The Anabaptists were persecuted and killed and slaughtered by the Roman church during the Middle Ages because they were getting baptized again. In other words, they believed that immersion should come after a person confessed Christ. And when they got baptized again, in addition to their Catholic baptism at infancy, the church said this is unacceptable to God and persecuted and killed them. I'll tell you simply, if you've been baptized the wrong way, you ought to get baptized the right way. It is for those who believe, it should be immediately after their act of faith in Christ. Well, what about you? Have you been baptized? If you haven't, it's a case of obedience and disobedience. You're not ignorant anymore. I hope you're not indifferent. I hope you're not defiant. And I hope most of all that you're not without Christ. Let's bow our heads for a moment. With everyone's head bowed just for a moment. This is so important. How many of you will just indicate to me and before the Lord and seal it in your own heart? I haven't been baptized. But I'm willing. I want to take my stand and demonstrate my repentance is real and that I have been joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. I want to be baptized. I want to be obedient. Just put your hand up. Hold it for a minute. Would you put it up? Just put your hand up. God bless all of you. Thank you. How many of you have been baptized? Put your hands up. Amen. Great. You can put them down. I'm going to suggest that uh, it would be a wonderful thing for us to have a time of baptism. And because it ought to happen 
now, I'm going to ask Dave Maddox in our student life office to work that out. And we'll, we'll just have a great time when we can gather and, and have this baptismal time right here on campus. This is kind of our family, and I mean, it could be done anywhere. If we had a river, we could use that. We've got a pool. Maybe we'll use that. We'll take care of this. If, so if you'll just, you that raise your hand saying, I want to be baptized, just go by the Student Life office and give them your name. And I think maybe in a few days, Dave, we, we ought to do that. Father, thank you.